Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about neurodivergent perspectives. My first guest is Joe Newman. Joe Newman likes kids with attitude because he has one. As one of the first children to be diagnosed with ADHD, he grew up with the label and belief he was broken and his potential thus limited. Through experience and growth, he has shattered this label and become a joyful and whole person, and that is the truth. For several decades, Joe has worked with children of all ages to help them harness their potential. He also coaches parents, teachers, and school administrators. Joe's work has been researched by the University of California at Santa Barbara. Um, his methodologies have been tracked, studied, observed, researched, and he's written books. The one we're talking about today is Raising Lions, the second edition. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for joining us on the show. Welcome to the wildlife <laughs> arena. Thanks, Lisa. I think we're talking about wildlife, I haven't heard it put that way. I think it's perfect. I think so, too. I saw that pillow when my kids were probably toddlers or babies. I'm like, oh, I have to have this. <laughs> yeah, I, I, when I, I remember I came up with the book title, Raising Lions, from... Um, I was, you know, I'd written the book and I'd submitted it and we didn't have a good title. And I'm walking around in elementary school and I'm looking at all the kids and I thought, all these kids are little lions, but we're acting like sheep. Yes. Act lions. Yes. Isn't that, isn't that a, a, an old uh, fable or something like that? That, that, that there, uh, there's a little lion that's been raised by a flock of sheep and he forgets who or she forgets uh -huh. who she is. Oh, that's interesting. And sees her I, reflection. I remember that. I had, no one's brought that up before. Yes. I'm going to find that and send it to you because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a real old story. Yes. I love that. Thank you. And, 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 and the little lion does not know it's a lion until the mother lion comes or a different lion comes wandering by the, the pack and sees this odd lion in with the sheep, pulls it aside and then shows him or her the truth by showing the reflection in water. Yeah. And I think, um, I think I would say that it's a, now we have some, in some ways, the reverse problem is that we've taught our children they're lions and we've forgotten that we're also lions and that they need role, role models that can speak their language and be as firm as they are because Otherwise, we end up shaming them, trying to shame them into being sheep. And that creates a whole other set of problems. So when we look at how we were raised, you and I, because we're probably of a similar close young age, and I say that with a grin. I don't know about you, but I sort of was raised by fear. That was Listen, kind of the model in my house. That's exactly right. And I think, um, you know, as a matter of fact, this is something I've just been thinking a lot about lately, which is that 
there's for most of human history, children were raised by fear. And that fear sort of evolved in how it was expressed, right? It was, um, it, it was corporal punishment. It was physical fear. It was going to bed without, you know, without supper. Um, but then it also grew into uh, fear of judgment, fear of shame, fear of taking the love away. And then, it, you know, it went into fear of severe consequences. And I think that right now we've taken fear out of the equation, which is a good thing, but it was also a pillar in in a in a in a way. It was like a pillar filled with asbestos. So we want to get rid of the asbestos, but the the thing about the fear is that it created this natural tension between the self-recognition and the recognition of the other. I would argue with you and I, it was all recognizing the parents and very little recognition of us. Right? <laughs> What you actually want is both, and that's held in tension. Now that tension used to be there from fear. We've taken that away. What are we going to use to replace it so our children take us seriously? What? Tell us. (laughs) Tell us, please. Tell us what to do with our lions or how to recover our own lion-like spirits. Well, like you can start with that, you know, our, our children are becoming like little scientists. They're building models about how things work. They're looking at, at what's going on. But we're talking to them like preachers. And by that, what I mean is that they're collecting data about what happens. The fear is gone. So now they're just going what works and what doesn't work. They don't need to please you. They're not afraid of you. They don't necessarily take you seriously. So they're just going what works for me, what doesn't work. Do I have power? Do you have power? That's a scientist moving through and kind of building a, a model of who you are and how things work. And we're trying to respond to them as if they're going to make decisions by the old model of let me convince you this is right. When fear was part of that, okay, they wanted your approval, so they'd buy in. But it's not. We've taken that off the table. So now we have to give them data. We have to speak to them directly without manipulation, you know, and I think that um, a scientist is like, look, if you do that, this happens and this might be frustrating and I'm going to administer this. And so setting up causes and effects, consequences in such a way where the child feels a sense of autonomy, but not judgment or manipulation can be hugely effective and will shift the dynamic. Let's talk a little bit more about that, because I think all of us are driven And I mean, all of us, adults and kids are driven by the need to feel as though we are in control, that we have some level of self-determination and effect upon the world around us. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. It's essential. And when we empower our kids to make these kinds of decisions for themselves, once they know the positives, the negatives, the consequences or the benefits we're teaching them about power. That's right. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, so many moments, uh, you know, of what I do with children revolves around my ability to identify their autonomy and acknowledge that without judgment. So a simple example is there's a boy eating dinner with his mom. Um, I'm sitting at the table with them. Uh, he asks for more almond milk. Mom says, I need you to finish eating some more of your chicken. 
you've had a couple almond milks. And he says, well, I won't eat the chicken until you give me an almond milk. And she <laughs> says, I won't give you the almond milk until you eat your chicken. And both sit there, hands crossed, staring at each other. And at this point, I waited. And then I leaned over to the boy and I said, if I were you, I wouldn't eat the chicken. <laughs> and he got quiet and he looked at me. He said, yeah, but if I don't eat the chicken, she's not going to give me the almond milk. And I said, yeah, but she can't make you eat the chicken. And he says, but I want the almond milk. I said, well, if you want to make a trade, you know, you eat the, you eat the chicken and you get the almond milk. That's fine. That seems reasonable. But she can't make you do it. So if you don't want to do it, don't do it. He got quiet for a minute. He sat down. He looked at her. He looked at me. Picked up his fork and he ate his chicken. Because he felt he had some power. That's like, right. You know, he re he was able to see that he actually did have a choice and free will in the situation. Yeah, and the that that conflict was not about chicken. Of course not. <laughs> it was about dignity. Yeah. And once you reframe it. And, and the reframing it also raises a child who all of a sudden is going to have a growth mindset as, as an adult, as opposed to, you know, an inflexible, um, you know, risk adverse mindset. I forgot what they, the term they use for the opposite of the growth mindset, fixed mindset. There it is. You know, you're telling this story about the stinking chicken. <laughs> And, you know, I'm thinking about critical thinking and you and I have, you know, touched upon this prior to starting the recorded interview portion of our, of our visit, that critical thinking, there are vast lapses in this, in the world we live in today. Yeah. So this is like, for me, you know, one of the things I, that I tell people that surprises them is stop saying so much, particularly about behavior. Okay. So. For instance, at, at, when we did this study in, um, in Santa Barbara, or they did the study, and I taught what, what I taught the teachers to do was instead of identifying behavior, saying Lisa, I need you to keep your hands to yourself. Okay, I would I, I said give them a small piece of real action data. Lisa, I need you to take one minute at the focus desk. You say, what did I do? I I said, look, I didn't say I did anything wrong. If you need to talk about it, we can talk about it after class. It's just a minute. Okay. If you didn't take the minute, another thing happened. Another thing happened, but you kept that same kind of language. And so literally what I was saying is don't tell them why they're getting the break. Don't tell them why they're getting the consequence. Why? Because 99.9% .9 of the time they either know already or they can figure it out. And when you step in there and give the information ahead of time, you have stolen from them the opportunity to get in the habit of mind of solving a problem. What I'm hearing you say is stop over explaining everything. <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, when I when I talk to a child in a in all, you know, first of all, I'm going to say, I think you can figure it out. And then I'm going to ask them questions. But I'm seldom going to give them answers, almost never, because I think they can get there themselves and I don't want to steal that from them. Yes. Give give the others the dignity of their process. 
you know. And not not to mention on a very practical level, you know, when when you tell someone what they did wrong and then give them a consequence or just tell them what they did wrong uh, or what their natural response is to defend their actions, to oppose you because they don't like you telling them what because you've stolen the act their own feeling of autonomy by telling them something they could figure out themselves. So they're going to push back in resistance because that gives them a feeling of autonomy again. And you open the door for manipulation for them to feign an inability to that they didn't understand. And all of a sudden now you're developing a relationship where you're doing all the work that they should be doing naturally and are capable of doing. And you've lowered the expectation down to the floor and things proceed from there. Not in a great direction. And then you've got this sense of learned helplessness and it creates this toxic loop and it's very frustrating and disharmonious in the home. Yeah. Absolutely. We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to continue the conversation with Joe Newman. We're talking about the second edition of his book, Raising Lions. I'm going to just give you a little subtitle for that book of taming the wildlife in your household. <laughs> 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 to learn more, please visit RaisingLions.com. On Twitter at Raising Lions, Facebook is Raising Lions Method. And on Instagram, that name is also Raising Lions. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is an absolute promise. Hang on. Before we jump off for a quick break, I want to remind you all that I'm a health-conscious, clean-freak germaphobe who keeps a super tidy home using green products. For years, I've been a subscriber to Grove Collaborative for all my eco-friendly household needs. As always, I want to show some love for today's sponsor, Grove Collaborative, delivering a greener clean to keep your home and our world spotless with earth-friendly cleaning essentials. Healthy plant-based non-toxic cleaning products do work and the good ones are actually more enjoyable to use. But where do you start and who do you trust? That's where Grove Collaborative comes in. Grove is the online marketplace that delivers healthy home, beauty, and personal care products directly to your doorstep. Grove Collaborative takes the guesswork out of going green. Browse the site for thousands of home, beauty, and personal care products, all guaranteed to be good for you, your family, your home, and our world. With Grove, it's a one-stop shop for all your natural goods. This saves time, money, and hassle. I'm a huge fan of Grove's seedling paper goods, which we stock in our home and Airbnb. Join me and more than 2 million households who trust Grove Collaborative to make their homes happier and healthier. Shipping is fast and free on your first order. Choosing products that are better for you and the planet has never been easier. For a limited time, when my listeners go to grove.com slash happiness, you will get to choose a free starter set with your first order. Go to grove.com slash happiness to get your exclusive offer. That's grove.com slash happiness. Now here comes that break. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Before we get back to it, I want to share how much I enjoy a good challenge like writing a book, making a documentary film, and baking a fabulous cake. 
I also enjoy grabbing a little stress relief with Best Fiends, my favorite mindlessly mindful casual mobile puzzle game. With more than 100 million downloads, Best Fiends is superior to any others out there. What I love most is that Best Fiends challenges my brain in new ways to strategize and conquer new levels. This gives me a shot of adrenaline that makes me feel like a winner. I'm working my way towards level 5,099 and counting. Best Fiends is my go-to digital play pal, and I'm happily hooked. If you're anything like me, you will be too. The fun never ends at Best Fiends because there are constant updates and always something new to explore. There's no game over with thousands of puzzle levels, you'll never run out of goals to achieve. I love the cute little collectible characters. Bam the Caterpillar, who lives in a strawberry patch, is still my favorite critter. Don't blame me if you end up kind of obsessed and find yourself playing in strange places. No Wi-Fi? No problem. Best Fiends even works offline. So go ahead, stress less and play more. Come join me for a squeaky clean good time. Download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Now let's rejoin the conversation. And we're back continuing the conversation with Joe Newman. We're talking about understanding neurodivergent perspectives. Let's get back to it. So Joe, prior to the break, we were talking about really what it takes to offer the space and opportunity for our children to learn to problem solve on their own, develop better critical thinking, and for us as parents not to work so hard that we strip the kids of their experience. Yes. And I think, um, you know, I, I think our children are natural problem solvers and we're taking away the problems um, and trying to give them just solutions. And um, and a lot of our kids are honestly rebelling against that because it's also taking their autonomy. So they want to be protagonists, but we are quite often shaping uh, children who think of themselves as victims. And that's a drag. I mean, for them, for everybody. Talk a little bit about what you write in Raising Lions about how to raise a protagonist as a child, not a victim. Okay, so this starts with the fact that we're giving our children a lot of power, okay, and we're doing that early. Um, and, but then we're trying to control that power through our approval and disapproval of their behavior and explanations about why things affect other people. When children are at this point, they need more problems to, to solve in order to develop their own moral and ethical capacity. And that means asserting our needs in ways that they have to wrestle with. You know, parents have to have a need. And so you give them, you can give them power, but you also get, have to give them a struggle that forces them to start to contend with uh, the person across from them. And so as you do this, you know, we have to move from parenting that tries to raise people who are motivated by approval or disapproval, i.e. conformists, right, uh, to children who are who are motivated. Um, what, the children are already motivated by independent thinking, problem solving and power. And when I say this to parents that I talk with, a lot of them light up as soon as I say, I think your child's motivated more by power than by approval. They go, yes. Well, I would say that's not a bad place to start, okay? Um, 
And if we set the boundaries and let them adapt, they're going to learn to start to solve the problems to get to where they want to go. And one of the biggest ways is simply to, to set very clear boundaries about what we need and consequences that ask them to do certain things and map that out and say, look, if you do this, this happens. If you do this, this happens. Um, and one of the things, actually, I'll let you jump in there. No, I was just, I was giggling, you know, about the sort of the, the cause and effect. You know, if you, if you pick door number one, this is going to happen. If you pick door number two, that's going to happen. Or door number three, you know, this other thing could happen. And, and that gives freedom of choice, you know, and also lets kids know what the consequences are of their, of their actions or lack of action. Yeah. And I think um, one of the big telling uh, bits of data that came out of the study in Santa Barbara was that, um, you know, there was a 50% decrease in off-task behavior school-wide, but some classes had like an 80% decrease in off-task behavior and some only had 20. And we looked at the difference between those classrooms and it had to do with the moment of information. So the teachers that were giving information about the behavior, they were saying, you know, Lisa, keep your hands to yourself. Brian, I need you to sit down. Don't interrupt me when I'm talking. Who were, the more information you gave, the less the improvement in your classroom. And the, so the teachers that saw the big improvement were the ones saying, you know, Lisa, I need you to take a break for a minute. And you might even go, why? Say, you know, um, we can talk about it after. It's just a minute. And because what happens when you don't give that information is the child in their mind solves the problem. So internally, instead of me saying, keep your hands to yourself, you internally in your mind go, I need to keep my hands to myself. Yeah. That becomes your habit. That little moment is problem solving. Okay. And every place we're giving information, we're robbing that. And we're making a victim instead of a protagonist. I like this. I like this idea of, of not placing our kids in victim space or victim mentality when we are disciplining them. Yes. You know, and I think so much of that. The other thing is that we have to learn the difference between reward and punishment and cause and effect. Yeah. So. Reward and punishment is when we administer consequences in a way that is paired with judgment and our personal and our personal decision about what they did. Okay, and that identifies the power as outside the child and within the adult. Cause and effect is saying when you do this, this happens, or in response, I need this. If you don't, if you give it to me, great. If you don't, this happens. That's your choice. You're going to make up your mind. You're going to figure this out. You hear the difference? I do hear the difference. And what I also wanted to jump in and add is that you suggest that we playfully enforce these boundaries as well, that it does not have to be, you know, with the rod or the stick, that it can be with humor and love. Yes. Yeah. Like for me, I, I like the back and forth of setting boundaries and doing breaks and I do it. Uh, with I try to do it with as much fun as the child challenges the boundaries because they're having fun with that. I had a, a experience a, a week ago. I went to a uh, a preschool. I was you know there to actually watch this uh, young boy, and immediately he comes up to me and he says, "You're Peter Pan. You're Peter Pan. I'm going to call you Peter Pan." 
And, you know, initially I said, yeah, well, well, who's Peter Pan? Can you explain that to me? And he didn't, he wouldn't engage in that. But he kind of went on with this for a couple minutes. And after a couple minutes, I said, I said, okay, you know, I'm done with the Peter Pan thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, my name's Joe. You can call me Mr. Newman. You can call me Joe. But uh, no more Peter Pan. And he says, well, what if I want to call you Peter Pan? I said, well, there'll be a consequence. And then I guess you'll figure that out. And he says, okay, Peter. <laughs> and I look up at his teacher and I give her a little, and I said, do you mind? Well, the teacher and I had already talked about giving him a break. So she says, all right, you need to sit for a quiet break. And he's no, no. And he has like a fight. And, and she brings him in and it ends up taking five minutes before she, he will sit down quietly um, and contain himself and calm himself for a couple minutes. And when he's done, he comes back outside where I am and he walks up and he says, I'm sorry I called you Peter Pan. Wow. I but I looked at him and I said, you don't need to apologize to me. You're trying to figure out who I am. You're trying to see if I'm somebody who does what I say I'm going to do. And I respect that. And if you need to do other things to figure that out, you should go right ahead. And I will show you who I am. And that's all right. We're figuring each other out. We good? He says, yeah, we're good. So simple, right? Just like when you explain it like that and you describe this methodology in action, it's like, that makes total sense. What I hear you suggesting is we don't have to be working so hard. Yeah. And I, and I also thought, you know, like for there, what I was telling him was like, look, you like to test the boundaries. I like to enforce them. We're a perfect pair. <laughs> yes. You know, I'm going to do them. You're going to figure me out. Things are going to happen. Yeah. Sh shift is going to happen. Yeah. I want to say that again. Because sometimes I get bleeped by terrestrial radio, shift is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I think I heard the other. <laughs> no, 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 no. Sometimes it might sound like that. But I do, I do get these nasty emails every once in a while from station managers around the world. Like, you can't say that. And I'm like, no, 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 I didn't say that. You heard That's, it wrong. I like it. Shift happens. Shift happens. Fantastic. I cannot believe it. We're almost out of time, but, but I want to ask you a zillion more questions and I'll, I'll, I'll just wrap up with one. And this mm -hmm. is about your own experience because you come to the party as Mr. Attitude when you yes. were a kid and probably a little bit still now as one of the first children to be diagnosed with ADHD. Talk a little bit about your experience as a kid and where you are today. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was and am uh, a very, what I like to call, tangential thinker. Somebody thinks of says one thing, I think of 30, and connected. One of those is going to be more interesting than the one you'd like to stay on uh, and talk about. So in school, I was also constantly moving and touching and grabbing and uh, couldn't sit still and had a hard time focusing. So what I heard was information, 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 explanation, explanation, explanation. But if you would have frozen any of those moments, I knew what those things they were telling me were. I just had a hard time controlling them. So internally, I started to feel, you know, that all of this information just told me about how I was wrong and how I had no character. And, um, and the more I got that information, the more people told me what I already knew, 
the more I defiantly felt like I needed to do the opposite to feel some sense of power. You know, my father used to remind me about the trash and how that needed to go out. And he'd tell me every, you know, Monday night when he'd come home and then he'd tell me 20 minutes later and he'd tell me 20 minutes later and he'd tell me 20 minutes later. And each time he told me, I dug in a little deeper. And I thought, if he doesn't tell me again, I'm going to do it. But he'd tell me again and I'd say, no, I'm going to do it later because the reminder felt like an insult. It felt like he was saying, hey, stupid, I know you can't remember from 20 minutes ago, so I'm telling you again. And my only place of dignity was to go, I won't do it. Okay. And I I walked out into the world. I left school, you know, uh, at 18 with a chip on my shoulder that pushed every boundary away every healthy boundary, you know, from, you know, that's when you should stop drinking. That's when you should be, uh, you know, uh, you need to be at work on time. That's when you're going to meet your friends. That's, you know, all of the boundaries I saw as an insult on my dignity. And I pushed against them instinctively quite often to my detriment. Okay. Then I had to realize I'm, I'm 30 and I'm still having a fight with my father. Um, so I understand defiance, uh, and defiance is often an ex- a cry for dignity, um, and I'm working to help uh, undo that before children have to live out the results of it. And that is a big gift, I think, to the world, because um, so many of us have kids that just, you know, maybe they're wired differently or maybe they're wired like the majority of people. But nonetheless, I think we all want to live our lives with dignity and we want to look back on our childhood childhoods and feel that um, we had some self-determination. I know I mentioned that earlier, but this is, this is a big thing. And, and, and having adult children, I I don't think that that ends, right? Like that these are still themes that are ever present I hear with my own clients, with, with friends who have adult kids. So I, I do think that this notion of raising lions and your methodology scales, not just to young kids, but older kids, adult kids, our partners, the way we show up for work, the way we live our lives. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people read it and they, they feel like, you know, it informs their relationships and, you know, it informs how they interact with their spouse and, uh, or their boss and, um, and so I'm, I'm happy when I hear that because I feel like it, we're talking about a model of, of human health and how to develop that that exists throughout a lifetime. It's not just in children. Thanks for showing up today, Joe. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> the, the book we've been talking about today is Raising Lions, the second edition. My guest today has been Joe Newman. You can find out more about Joe and his work at RaisingLions.com, on Twitter at Raising Lions, Facebook is Raising Lions Method, and on Instagram, Raising Lions. I really urge you, the listener, if you're looking to tame the wildlife in, in your orbit, pick up a copy of Raising Lions. Joe, thanks again. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. We'll take that brief break and we'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. 
back, continuing the conversation about what it takes to understand neurodivergent perspectives. My next guest is Eric Garcia. Eric Garcia is a journalist based in Washington, D.C. Previously, he was an assistant editor at the Washington Post Outlook section and an associate editor at The Hill and a correspondent for National Journal, Market Watch, and Roll Call. Eric has also written for The Daily Beast, The New Republic, and Salon.com. Garcia is a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he is the author of We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. Eric, I am really delighted to have you here today. This is topical in in my world, um, in working with clients and what some of my family members do. And I'm just curious, what prompted you to write this book? This is a really interesting story. I was at a party in 2015 with a guy by the name of uh, Tim Mack, who was a reporter at the Daily Beast. Now he's a reporter at NPR. And he offered me a drink. And I said, oh, I can't drink because I'm autistic and a uh, medicine I take doesn't mix with alcohol. And he said, and what was interesting was instead of calling me a wimp or saying, oh, come on, have another shot, have a shot or have a glass of whiskey or have a beer. He said, "Um, oh, there's a ton of autistic people who live in Washington, D.C. and who work in journalism or in politics. You should write a piece about this. I thought, you know, I was I was I was pretty young at the time and I was like I was 24 at the time. And I said, oh, when I I get good at this thing, you know, maybe I will. Uh, I'm not as good as him. and then he prodded me again. And then what happened was I was working at National Journal at the time, and they announced that the print edition of the magazine was going to shut down. So my so the editor of the print so the editor of the print magazine, uh, Richard Just, said, "I want to have just go for broke kind of uh, audacious magazine pieces." You know, it's kind of like when you're giving your two weeks notice at work. You yeah. know, <laughs> you don't care. Um, <laughs> yeah, you re- don't care. Let, it, let your freak fly. <laughs> yeah. So like, uh, and I love Richard for that. And uh, so I pitched this idea about what it's like to be autistic in D.C. And I thought it would be kind of a fun little chatty front of the book kind of magazine piece about inside D.C. life, you know. And then he, he, you know, I initially tried that. And then he said, well, why should we do this? And then he's like, and I kind of like when my editors do that, you know, like kind of push you, you know. And and I said, well, we focus too much on trying to cure autistic people and not enough on trying to help them live fulfilling lives. It's like, okay, there's your piece. Um. And God love him for that. And at the same time, as I was reporting out this piece, this was in 2015. So was, I'm a political journalist. So if you remember, this was around the time when Donald Trump, we were, he was going from being seen as kind of a joke candidate to, oh my God, this guy could actually win. This guy, this guy could be like a legitimate, legitimate candidate, you know? Yeah, I and, remember. Uh, I was at a debate watch party on Capitol Hill for a piece. And I noticed he mentioned uh, that, you know, he said that, you know, autism has become an epidemic. Uh, he talked about his friend's child who got like a tremendous fever and was autistic after that. And what after said a vaccine, that, he said yeah, after, after he a had a vaccine, yeah. after he had a vaccine at the kid, after the kid had a vaccine or something like that. So what that said, to, and then conversely, earlier that year, I grew up in California I'm sure you remember in like 2015, there was that measles outbreak in Disneyland. Yep. And what that, and you know, California, it's got some Republicans, but it's, you know, it's a bunch of liberal hippies. So what that <laughs> said to me, 
Like, no, no, like, uh, uh, and I don't say that in a bad way. So what that said to me is that, like, okay, you got a bunch of hippies in California who aren't vaccinating their kids because of toxins or whatever. And you've got Donald Trump, who was the Republican frontrunner at the time, um, talking about autism and vaccines. So that included some, ur- that created some urgency for me. And so I wrote that piece, it blew up. And then the next question was, okay, we spent all this time trying to fix autistic people or trying to, or being afraid of autism. What would it look like? So what were the effects of that on autistic people today? And how did, how does that affect autistic people today? And then how do we make a, and then, so then, then that led me to, then I almost kind of got angry and I was like, what if we had spent all this time trying to help autistic people live fulfilling lives? And then the next question is, well, what does that look like? What would that look like? So I spent the last two and a half years traveling the country, trying to see what that look that would look like. So that led me to go to the Bay Area, to Nashville, Tennessee, to Michigan, to uh, to even West Virginia, uh, to see what that would look like um, if we if we made a better world for autistic people and a better country for autistic people. So let, let's let's go back to a second to the vaccines. Vaccines do not create autism. That has yeah. been proven. The research and science say this is not the case. Um, it was once thought that the uh, thimerosal, the, the preservative that was yeah. in the vaccine, is what the cause was. That is BS. Not true. Yeah. So let's get yeah. rid of that. Vaccinate yes. your kids, people, <laughs> and get the COVID vaccine. <laughs> yeah, I'm an advocate for that for sure. Ah, okay. So now on your journey, two and a half years, you said on the road? Uh, yeah, two and a half years on the road on, on and off. Yeah. So as an autistic person traveling America, yeah, what did you discover? What I discovered was that the misunderstandings around autism or the focus on trying to cure autistic people for a long time has really prevented has really is really not helping autistic people it traumatizes i think it traumatizes yes yes um so all this focus doesn't help autistic people find employment if they want to find employment it creates a series of hoops if they can't find work to get to get ssi benefits uh, which is social, which is supplemental secure, uh, supplemental security income, I believe, and it prevents. And then when autistic people navigate the healthcare system, a lot of times they aren't taken seriously. I interviewed a woman in uh, Allison Park, Pennsylvania. Her name is Lydia Wayman, and her doctors didn't take her seriously when she was going through horrific chronic illness because she was, uh, they, they thought that she was too happy or that she was too informed. When like, if you're autistic, the way you learn how to deal with things is to learn as much you can as you can about it. And she told me, and I'll never forget that, she says, I didn't realize I had to play social games with doctors. Wow. And she actually wound up in a nursing home. So to dumb herself uh, down, in other words? Uh, yeah, I don't know what they would have wanted. I don't know what they would have expected because if she had, you know, not used as complex language, they, they wouldn't have taken her seriously. They say, oh, she can't articulate her needs. So it's kind of one or the other. How the hell are they supposed to win? And then also, you know, uh, at the same time, um, what I learned was because we saw, we see autism mostly as 
a white male thing that affects upper class people that has led to a lot of women getting undiagnosed or misdiagnosed, a lot of people of color getting misdiagnosed or diagnosed later. And it ignores a lot of LGBTQ people, LGBTQ plus people. Yeah, yeah. I I can Um, see. I can see where this can happen. Yeah, I think that there was a, I have it right here. Yeah, so there was a study in autism research that, that a journal called Autism Research in 2018 that surveyed 309 autistic people and 310 typically developing individuals. And it found that while 30.9% of the typically developing group reported being non-heterosexual, 69.7 reported be, uh, 69.7 of the autistic group reported being non-heterosexual with higher rates of bisexuality, homosexuality, and asexuality. And there are also plenty of transgender autistic people. And a lot of times when they want a gender transition, a lot of times they are not taken seriously because it's like, oh, well, you're autistic. You know, how, how do you know what you, how do you know what you want? Can, can we just uh, stop for one second and, and myth bust here for a moment? Um, sure. Many people m- believe, because up until the 80s, I think it was, or early 80s, or maybe it was 1980, that autism was considered a psychiatric disorder. Yes, correct. So that's, I of- want to really like clear the air with that. Right. And that's important to say because uh, I believe it was in 1911, Eugen Bloiler first person to ever write about autism, considered a symptom of schizophrenia. And if you read a lot of magazine articles or journal articles from before then, autism and childhood schizophrenia are kind of used interchangeably, depending on what you read. Um, So it wasn't until 1980 that the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, I think that's the proper term, proper uh, name for it, uh, listed autism as a separate thing. And it wasn't until, until, until then that it was considered a disability. In 1990, there was the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act was passed. It was a reauthorization of the Education for Handicapped Children Act. And there was a con- concurring report at the time that, uh, from the House of Representatives that said, autism has suffered from an historically inaccurate identification with mental illness. Yeah. And there was this decision and this house report said that the IDEA was meant to quote, was quote, meant to establish autism definitively as a developmental disability and not as a form of mental illness, unquote. I, I had the document in front of me. Which is a huge um, difference. I mean, these that are is a, two different things. <laughs> that is a massive difference. And yes. I want to say that the, that why that matters. So I was born that year. I was born in 1990. Uh, the year that the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed. Um, what that did by mandating that, it meant that students with disabilities were provided with a free, appropriate public education, and that now applied to students with autism. The other thing that it did was it meant that schools now had to report the number of autistic students they served along with every other disability, to the U.S. Department of Education. And what that in turn did is it led to an increase of children, of known children, of children getting diagnosed with autism 
or statistics showing an increase. So it's important to realize that that spike, a lot of people talk about how autism became an epidemic in the 90s. That spike was because in the 1980s, we expanded our definition from about autism to that it's separate from schizophrenia. And then we included things like PDD, NOS. Tell us what those are. Pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. In 1994, Asperger syndrome was included, or Asperger syndrome, named for Hans Asperger. Um, uh, and then uh, in 2013, all of them were kind of put under the umbrella of autism spectrum disorder. We're going to take a break, but before we do, I want to give information about my guest, Eric Garcia. To learn more about the work of Eric Garcia, please visit ericgarcia.net. On Twitter, he is at Eric M. Garcia. The book we're talking about is We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation with Eric Garcia, we're talking about what it takes to understand neurodivergent perspectives. Let's get back to it. So Eric, prior to the break, we, you were mentioning about what was perceived as an uptick in autism in the 90s, which really wasn't. Right. So it was this concurrent clinicians and researchers were expanding their definition of autism to include different variations of autism. And our understanding of autism was now seen as a, wide, a broader spectrum. And then at the same time, public policy was changing so that there was more reporting of who was autistic. And so what it did is it led to this spike. And a lot of people thought there's an epidemic of autism or thought it was a public health emergency, when really it was that there were just more reported cases of autism. And that was a good thing. And it's also, I also think about it almost like, I kind of, it's kind of a bummer because you think this was a missed opportunity because we had a chance to try to help autistic people live more fulfilling lives. And instead, eight years later, Andrew Wakefield put out his BS study on autism and vaccines and it led to a moral panic. So we really kind of missed a great opportunity to do some real good for autistic people. Well, I think that, uh, humans are always looking to understand or lame blame or find the cause or root cause of whatever mm -hmm. situation uh, they're confronted with yeah. rather than just say, this is, this is about wiring, different wiring. Right. And I think it's uh, this impulse to kind of want to make this about us, right? What does it say about the world at large instead of no, like, what does it say about the autistic people, you know? 
Yeah. Uh, and what and, and and what can we do uh, to make things easier for them? You know. Well, is it? It's also making things easier for people who have autism to become self-actualized and maintain self-determination on yeah. the one hand, and then on the other hand, yeah. educating society to understand that people who have autism are not dumb, they're not to be feared, and they're yeah. productive people. Right. And even if, you know, even if autistic people who have intellectual disabilities or who don't, uh, who aren't able to contribute to society, quote unquote, contribute to society through work or things like that, they have, they have just as much value as anyone else. One of my favorite television shows that I've been binge watching lately is Community. And uh, the character, one character, Abed Nadir, it's never explicitly said he's autistic, but it's implied he is. And one of the first things that they say is uh, that one of the characters says is, I see your value now. Um, and hmm. I think that's kind, of, that's kind of the approach a lot of people have toward autism is that we only really like autistic people once we see their value. And no, it's like you have to, you, you have to care about people because they're people, you know? I do know. I hear you. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about a famous study from Sweden, because this is sure. fascinating. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The 2015 study by, it was from Sweden. I'm going to, Swedes, I'm sorry. I'm going to bastardize this. I'm sorry. It's the Karolinska Institute in the city of Stockholm surveyed more than 27,000 autistic adults and compared them with about 2.7 million autistic, non-autistic adults. And the study found that the that low functioning, that quote unquote low functioning, so people with higher support needs, I don't like the terms low functioning or high functioning, that quote unquote low functioning autistic people had higher mortality rates than quote unquote high functioning autistic people, but both had a higher mortality rate than the general population in Sweden. And what was interesting was that the leading cause of death for autistic people with higher support needs was, or what a lot of people would call low functioning, was epilepsy. And the most common causes of death for autistic people without intellectual disabilities were circulatory conditions like heart disease, followed by suicide. Oof. Yeah. That's heavy. Yeah, it is. It's heavy. And there are plenty of autistic people who have lost their lives to suicide. Um, and many of them live with depression. And Yeah. Well, I think that is part of the conversation that um, we made clear that autism is not a psychiatric disorder. And yet many people with autism do have depression because they are battling with this idea, or I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, how to create a life, how to maintain the, the self-determination and autonomy that, that we spoke of. Yeah, like, I mean, even I thought about that when I was growing up. Like, I thought about, like, I heard the stories that autistic people can't get married. I heard stories that autistic people uh, can't live fulfilling lives or can't live independently. And, you know, when you have that sense of hopelessness, you know, one of the main causes of autism or main causes of suicide is helplessness and hopelessness. And when you have this hopelessness and when you have a world that has basically consigned you to uh, a miserable life, it leads to suicidal ideation uh, and sadly, a lot of times people acting on suicidal ideations. So I want to just touch upon something that you said about the, the, the myth that autistic people can, will not get married or can't get married. That yeah. is complete BS. You and I spoke about a former girlfriend of yours 
And you uh, are here to say that that is not true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and like I met, I've met tons of autistic people who are married and who have kids in my book. I, profile the Williams family in the Bay Area of California. Both parents are autistic. All three kids are some variation of autistic. And I think what I should also add is that them being autistic helps them be better parents to their autistic kids because they understand them. Yeah. You know, in working with clients who have autism, one of the things that oftentimes is said to me is, I feel as though I'm never understood. Like one of my big frustrations is like, I don't feel like people really get me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that a lot of times it's easier to stigmatize rather than to understand. And a lot of times stigmatization is rooted more in what other people have to think. What it says more about the other people than it does about us, than, than it does about autistic people, you know, Stigmatization or refusal to understand allows neurotypical people to judge and not change their own behavior, whereas understanding requires you to change. And it yeah. requires the world. It requires the world to change. And it requires. And what does that mean? It means you know you doing something that's uncomfortable. If you're a government, it means spending money. You know, if, <laughs> yeah. you're, if you're a school, it means spending money. Uh, it, it means, you know, being more accessible or spending more money on resources, you know? So it's always, so, so like that means uh, that, that it, it means doing things that you wouldn't normally have to do. And that's uncomfortable for a lot of people adjusting or understanding and behaving in a way that's not inauthentic for the the regularly wired person in dealing with somebody who has that neurodiversity, but understanding that you might have to speak with that person or approach your response to that person in a slightly different way so they can embrace the information. Yeah. So, I mean, I live in Washington, D.C., and the area I live in is – Historically, I guess you could say it was, you know, largely African-American for a long time and has a, but then also there it, it's pride month and, you know, there's like a drag brunch, a few months or a drag part, like place that has drag shows a few blocks away from where I live. And like, it's incumbent on me. I may not know what it's like to be black or I know, I, don't, I may never know what it's like to be gay, but it is incumbent on me to recognize that I live in a world and I live in a neighborhood. These people are my neighbors. Yeah, uh, and I have to understand what black people go through, especially in when it comes to police violence. And I have to understand what it's like to be gay. And you know, I understand what it's like for the world to just be afraid of you. Uh, and I understand what it's like for the world to want to change you. And I think that it's incumbent on me to want to, to, it's incumbent, just as it's incumbent on me to want to understand them and understand their world, it's incumbent on them for them to understand me. I agree, because that's what happiness is. You know, when you have yeah. that state of mutual empathy for one another, when we can put ourselves in each other's shoes and be willing to see the struggles of one another, it 
it, it, it makes us softer. It may, and I don't mean softer and not being able to yeah. be courageous in the world, but it softens our heart and we see we're not separate from one another. And maybe that's the essence of your message. Yeah. And I also like, I also want to add not just the struggles of other people, but also what makes them happy. You know, yes. uh, like I want to like, I want autism. I want neurotypical people to understand that what makes me happy isn't something that isn't something that's weird, you know, or is it shouldn't be pathologized. And in the same way, I want people to understand that what makes black, I don't want white people to call the cops on black people having a good time at a party, the park. And I don't want uh, gay people from not being able to celebrate themselves. And I want them to be able to enjoy themselves and have a fabulous, you know, parade for pride. And I want them to be able to love the person that they want to love. And so like, and I want, I want all of us to be able to, you know, so also recognizing our struggles, but also our happiness. I think that's also the important part. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, a, amen yeah. to that, to, to, to loving who you want to love, how you want to love them. You know, yeah. that, that really is a gift. If we could all do that, the world yeah. would be a happier place, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like, also just like, you know, white people just don't call the cops on black people when they're having a good time. Like just don't. So, you know, that's, so. A, that's an entirely other conversation. That's another yeah. show theme. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Wow. We are out of time. If you know of somebody in your world, in your orbit that um, has a differently wired person in their lives, please, please get them this book. We're talking about We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. My guest today has been Eric Garcia. You can learn more about Eric and his work at ericgarcia.net on Twitter at Eric M. Garcia. Eric Thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm actually like, I want to give you a hug. Like here's a big virtual yeah. hug. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it was, it was fun to talk about. It was fun to talk with you. I hope everybody, I hope people grow from this book and I hope people listen because I'm not, I don't want people to just listen to me. I want them to listen to the autistic people in their lives. And one, it, roughly one in 50, depending on the study you read, a lot of people in the world uh, of people are of children are autistic. Wow. We don't know how many autistic adults there are. So that means chances are you know somebody who's autistic. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen and my guests, Joe Newman and Eric Garcia, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.